For those of you who don't know me, my name is Freddie. I am the young adults pastor here at Northview, and it is my privilege to be here tonight uh, to preach out of John chapter 3. Two years ago, last, like winter 2020, my wife and I were car shopping. If you've ever gone car shopping, you know the kind of dread that comes along with that. Uh, you're making a big decision that you'll be stuck with for five to seven years, depending on the payment plan that you choose. Uh, even if you saved up a little bit of money, you're still going to get stuck with payments. That car, uh, it's yours. And if anything goes wrong, it usually happens after you finish paying it off. So uh, you're, you're, you know, I have to make a good choice. My wife watched probably like 40 hours of YouTube videos comparing different compact SUVs. And we settled it between two. We, there was two options that the Orozco's were looking at. A Toyota RAV4 and a Honda CRV. Pretty standard. If you like domestics, I'm so sorry. We are going with, I guess, the Japanese cars. Uh, but we were looking at these cars, and we went and, of course, we test drove them. We test drove one in Chilliwack. We test drove one in Abbotsford. And our goal in test driving them was comparing them not to other cars, but to the other option. How does the RAV4 stack up to the CRV? And we asked questions like, what kind of features you got? Uh, what are the warranties that come with this vehicle? Uh, you, you know, we sat in the, in the front seats, we sat in the back seats, you know, could I fit a double stroller in the trunk? Uh, how many car seats can I fit in here? Right, we're asking all the questions because we're stuck with this car for at least the next five years, 10, 15, 20, only the Lord knows. What we were doing in this entire experience is comparing two things. The reason we would do that is because we want the better option. The reason you compare two things is so that you choose the one that is greater of the two things. John chapter three has two comparisons. Jesus and John the Baptist, Jesus and the world. The lesson here is really simple in these last verses in John chapter three, Jesus is greater. If you walk out of here tonight and that's all you remember, I did my job. Jesus is greater. So we're gonna start in John chapter three, verse 22. It's behind me on the screen or you're welcome to turn there if you have a print Bible. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Jesus also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said, Rabbi, he was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. The whole world is going to him. John answered, a person can receive even, cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So up to here, we're in John chapter three. If you were here last week, you remember we met another teacher of Israel. We met Nicodemus, a rabbi. And now in this passage, we meet John the Baptist, who is also a teacher. He has disciples. And then his disciples are comparing him 
to Jesus. So there's three teachers in front of us, three rabbis. Uh, it sounds like the beginning of a pretty lame joke, right? Three rabbis walk into a pool and they're baptizing. So John, why, why would John tell us all these details, right? John gives us all these details, not the Nicodemus part, but the Jesus and John the Baptist part, because he wants to show us something about who Jesus is. So we meet John the Baptist here in chapter three, but we actually met him way back in chapter one. I wanna read something from chapter one to remind you what John the Baptist's ministry was. In the passage, I mean, his name is pretty evident. John the Baptist, what would John the Baptist do? Baptize people, it's in his name, right? So some of it is pretty evident, but he also preached things. What kind of things would he teach? John chapter one, verse six. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. John the Baptist was baptizing people, but, and he gained a name for himself doing it, but th that's not the most important thing he did. The most important thing he did was preach, and what he preached was someone is coming after me that y'all gotta be ready for. Someone is coming after me who is greater than me. Here in verse 30, he says, someone is coming after me who must increase and I must decrease. See, John the Baptist knew his mission. He was a witness. He was a messenger. He's gonna tell people about Jesus. John the Baptist's disciples, it doesn't seem like they understood his mission, right? Verse 26, right? They come to him and they say, Rabbi, everyone's going to him. Like, do something, right? You can, you can imagine the scene, right? Like, they're sitting together, they have their, their board meeting, and they're saying, you know, we're losing market share to this Jesus guy, right? You know, we have the best burger in town, but, you know, everyone's going over there now. John, like, what are you going to do? You know, what new service can you provide so people come back to us, right? John, John, we, we, we follow you, right? You're the right guy to follow. And John spends time correcting these guys. They're confused. What are they missing? What don't they understand about who Jesus is. I think they didn't understand that Jesus was greater because they didn't understand that his mission was greater than John's. Jesus is greater than John the Baptist because his mission is greater than John the Baptist. See, John the Baptist, like I said before, he was a messenger. He understood that very clearly back in chapter one. And here again in chapter three, the kind of things he say make it apparent that he did not think too highly of himself that he was a very humble man. He says, my joy is complete, right? I, I don't know any of us that, that would do that, right? When, when you train someone to do something, right? You get a new coworker and you're teaching them the ropes and they start doing your tasks better than you. Would you say, you know, he must increase, I must decrease. None of us does that, but John does that. John does that. He sees Jesus. He sees that people are going to him and he says, my joy is increasing, he must increase and I must decrease. See, John knew it wasn't about him. Uh, if you, you know, have, driving around, you see those little bumper stickers, the he is greater than I, greater than those little alligators, right? The alligator eats what's bigger, if you remember from grade school, right? That sticker, it's Genesis. It, it comes from this verse, from John 3.30. He must increase, I must decrease. John the Baptist had that attitude, People who throw that sticker on their car or on their laptop or on their school binder, they're saying, I wanna be like John the Baptist. I want to think more of Jesus than I do of myself. And John gives his followers an illustration. 
an image to help them understand that, hey, you're missing, missing the point. Uh, the star of the show is not me. I'm a supporting character. He uses the example of a wedding. He says, I am the friend of the bridegroom. I'm not the bridegroom, right? I'm a supporting character. Uh, if, imagine with me that you're going to a wedding. Maybe you don't have to imagine very far. Uh, now is the engagement time, and as we get hit, head into spring, people start having their ceremonies, right? Once the rain stops, which is gonna start for the next six months, praise God. Uh, but anyways, you're at a wedding. And imagine with me that at this wedding, you know the, the bride, you know the groom, you love them dearly, that's why you're there. You also know the best man and the maid of honor. And the best man and the maid of honor are really nice people, uh, and they've made a huge investment of their time and energy, right? Best man went and got a haircut. That was $45 plus tip, right? Girls are thinking that's nothing. My haircut is $300, right? But that's an investment for a dude, right? He, he got a new suit. It's, you know, it still has the pleats in it. And that girl spent $700 on a dress and she's got the eyelash extensions. Like they look great, right? Best man, maid of honor look amazing, now imagine with me that this best man, this maid of honor, they walk down the aisle and they stand directly in front of the minister. And they say, no, no, I know the wedding's like for the people, but like, I gotta be front. Look at me, look at me. Look how good I look today. I have to be front and center. We would be a little bit shocked. What if as they walk down the aisle that you, you convince them, hey, get out of the way. The wedding is gonna happen. Get out of the way. They get out of the way. But then as soon as, you know, you, the couple kisses and we start celebrating, they come up to you and they say, hey, uh, Best man, maid of honor, uh, this title, I'd like to keep it. Uh, not just for this wedding, I know the wedding's over, but I actually, I will not answer to anything less than best man from now on, uh, or maid of honor. Uh, you must refer to me exclusively by this title or I will ignore you. I, we would think they're kind of rude, right? They're being weird at first, standing dead center, and now we're thinking, actually, they're kind of rude. And what if this, these two people, they go to the photographer and they tell the photographer, hey, golden hour, right, perfect lighting, Make sure you get my pictures first. Uh, I look good today, and I just want to remember it. I got to change my Instagram profile pic. You know what it is. We, we would be shocked. We would not stand by silently as someone hijacked a wedding. The wedding is for the bride and for the groom. John the Baptist takes that image because it is so accessible. Everyone knows what a wedding is. Everyone has been to a wedding. And he says, at a wedding... We rejoice that the bride and the groom are married. Disciples, you're, you're missing it, man. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. Jesus showed up. He's walking down the aisle. Salvation is coming. I, I'm gonna celebrate. It's, I'm not gonna steal the limelight. It's not about me. He must increase and I must decrease. John the Baptist understood his mission, that he was a messenger. And he understood who Jesus was and what Jesus' mission was in that he came to give eternal life, right? That's John 3, 16, right? Probably the most well-known verse ever, right? That whoever believes in him will not perish, but will gain eternal life, right? Jesus came to offer eternal life to everybody. So John the Baptist, this is the reason John the Baptist says, uh, he must increase and I must decrease. John the Baptist can't save anybody, he can only tell them about Jesus. So when Jesus shows up, John rejoices, even if his followers don't. I think there's, there's one thing though in, in this passage that you know we flew through it and it's easy to miss, but verse 27, I wanna narrow in on a little bit. 
John doesn't just talk about Jesus bringing salvation. He actually goes beneath the surface and gives us a little bit more about how salvation actually works. Right, verse, verse 27 of chapter three, I think is, is a challenging verse. It says that a person can receive not even one thing unless it is given them from heaven. At first, as you're reading through the passage, you're like, oh yeah, John the Baptist's ministry. This passage refers to John the Baptist's role. He's a messenger and God gave him that role. But then you understand, wait, in the context, it's, it's not just talking about his role. It's talking about the mission of both of these people. And Jesus' mission was salvation. So what is the statement that John is making about salvation? If you were here last week, you would have heard it. It is a, a theological, a depthy theological truth. Salvation belongs to the Lord. John the Baptist, in the middle of a conversation about who's better, pauses and says, just, just to make things clear, Salvation belongs to the Lord. He doesn't use those words, but he's trying to communicate that idea. Why do I think that? Let me go chapter one, chapter two, chapter three to show you that John has been building up to this moment. So in John chapter one, in verse 12 and 13, John has a funny phrase where he says, you must be born of the will of God. Not of the will of man, not of the flesh, but of the will of God. So if you thumb back a few pages, you can see that very clearly. A person needs to be born of the will of God. And as you're reading through chapter one, you're thinking to yourself, how do I do that? I don't, I don't know how that works. I didn't choose when I was born. I had no control over that moment, but apparently I must be born of the will of God. And you fast forward two chapters and you get to chapter three, what Mark preached last week. And John 3, 3 says, you must be born again. A person must be born from above. You're like, okay, well, I have to be born of the will of God. And I must be born from again or from above. And verse five says, by the spirit and the water. So you're like, okay, born of the will of God, born of the spirit. Okay, it's still not clear to me how this actually happens. Like in what way can someone experience that? Verse 27 of chapter three, uh, a person can receive nothing, not even one thing unless it is given from above, right? If we're gonna turn it into positive language, we would say, you receive from heaven, we receive, receive gifts from heaven. You might've heard the phrase, right? Salvation is a gift. John 3, 27 is saying that. Salvation is a gift from God. If you remember last week's sermon, you might be thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, Pastor Mark used an illustration. He said it's two sides of the same coin, right? Nod with me if you remember. Please say you remember. Mark, no one remembers. I'm so sorry, wherever you are. All right, you need to do better. But anyways, back to this, back to this. All right, so I'll remind you, so apparently everyone forgot, but I can quickly refresh your memory. The image Mark used was of a coin, right? When we say like, how does someone become saved? How does someone believe? Well, they have to believe. They have to make a decision for Jesus. John three sixteen. you must believe whosoever believes. That's one side of the coin. And the other side of the coin is John three three. They must be born again. So when you say, you know, what, what must someone do to be, you know, to be a Christian? Well, they have to be born again and they have to believe. And you're like, which, so God does something and they do something. Uh, which one comes first? Yes, they, they, they both, they work together, right? This is what we talked about last week. Last week, we were dealing with the question of how someone becomes a Christian. I 100% agree with Mark. I think he correctly taught the passage Someone needs to be born again and someone needs to believe in Jesus. Both of those things together, two sides of the same coin. That's asking the how question. 
how does someone become a Christian? Two things have to happen. But John 3.27 isn't asking the how question. John 3.27 is asking the why question. Why does someone become a Christian? All kinds of people hear the gospel. All kinds of people say they've been born again. How do we know? How, how is it? Why is it that someone inexplicably at some point says, I want to be a Christian now? Whether they're little, whether they're old, at some point people say that. John 3.27 says, God gave it to you. Salvation is a gift from the Lord. It's the same coin, yes, two sides, but God gave you the coin. John 3.27, I think, is a shocking image because it puts the onus on God. When, when we think of Christian life, we always think of our, our lane, our response, our role. Right? We have to believe. We have to live faithful Christian lives. But John 3.27 is a reminder that actually Christian life starts when God gives you new birth from heaven and you respond at some point. And God is working in your story. The only reason anyone is ever a Christian is because God gives it to them from heaven. John 3.27 contains a powerful truth. Now you might be sitting there thinking, I didn't really need that explanation. Uh, you could have just said salvation belongs to the Lord or you know, we're saved by grace through faith and I would have been fine. I, I don't know why you dove in. I, I wanna tell you why I dove in. The, the reason I dove in on this is because I want every Christian in this room to have assurance of salvation. You might not be familiar with that language, but how do you know you're saved? How do you feel saved? It's kind of a funny question, right? And this is something we ask in baptism interviews. We, we ask people that are coming through, how do you know you're a Christian? How do you know you're saved? And it's always interesting to see how people respond. People focus on the how. Right, they focus on the, well, I believe. I went to church. I grew up in a Christian home. I went to Luke's youth group or Dan's youth group. Right? I, I believe the right things. I've believed. Occasionally someone will say, I think I've had the new birth. I've had a supernatural experience. People always say the how. John 3.27 gives us the why. Why are you Christian? Well, God gave me a gift. And I don't know why, man, but I heard the gospel and it sounded true. And I said, yes, I'm in. And, you know, and there have been some hard times along the way, but I'm like, I'm pretty committed to this. You know, I have friends that have abandoned the faith, but I'm like, I could never do that. I, I, it doesn't even click in my head. How could I walk away from God? We're like, well, you couldn't because he gave you the gifts. John 3.27 is meant to give us hope. I, I serve with young adults and I constantly talk to young adults that are going through big transitions. Some of it will be like mental health stuff or physical health challenges loss of loved ones, role changes in their work or in their school. And as they share about their frustrations or the hard things they're going through, far too often, as the conversation turns to faith, they share that, you know, I'm not so sure I believe, man. I, I've, I've been to church like 20 years. I've been to Northview since I was four, man. Or I, I remember my parents showing me the picture of me being dedicated at Northview. Like, I've been here my whole life, but I don't know if I believe. And in those moments, I, like, I gotta be honest with you, I often feel stumped. Like, what do you say? What do you say to someone who's feeling despair, who does not know if they're a Christian, who does not know if they believe? Far too often, 
I would talk about the how. Well, like, didn't you believe? Or like, haven't you been reading your Bible? Or talk to me about your prayer life. All the how, or all the things that you do. But as I looked at John 3, 27 this week, I was reminded yet again, in those moments, what actually gives people encouragement is reminding them that the only reason you are here is because God brought you here to this moment. God gifted you salvation. That's why you believed. And even in the hard things to get you to this moment, God was working through it because he gave you a gift. God started it. He's not gonna abandon it halfway through. I want everyone in this room to have the same assurance that a baptism candidate has or a struggling adult has when we remind them salvation belongs to the Lord. Don't, don't worry so much. God started something in you. He will finish the good work he started. Just hang in there, buddy. If you are in this room and you're a Christian, I, I want you to remember that the reason you are a Christian is because God gave you the new birth. And God has brought you to this very moment. If you are in this room and you are not a Christian, I think this is a great opportunity to become one. This is a great reminder that God is working in our world. John 3.16 says that he offers eternal life to everyone. And if you're in this room, you've heard the offer. You've heard the offer that anybody can believe. So if you have not yet believed, it's pretty simple. All you have to do is say, God, I believe uh, that you're out there. I, I believe you exist. Uh, and I believe you come through. I believe you help people. Uh, could you help me? It's that easy. If you're in this room and you've not yet believed, today could be the day of salvation. John the Baptist's disciples did not believe. They were looking at Jesus and they were mad that people were going to him. They did not understand what he came to offer the world. My hope is that no one in this room would be able to say that. I hope you know that Jesus came to offer salvation to the whole world and today could be the day that you believe. Second point is Jesus versus the world. John 3, 31. He who comes from heaven is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he, he whom God sent utters the words of God and he gives a spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. These last six verses tie together everything we've seen in John chapter three. The Nicodemus story, the statements about human nature after the Nicodemus story, and then the comparison between Jesus and John the Baptist here in, in point one. But I wanna focus on the, the stuff that comes in the middle between Nicodemus and Jesus and John the Baptist. John three, like eight, 19 and 20, make some profound statements about human nature that are returned to in this passage here, in these six verses. So I wanna talk really quickly about human nature and about the identity of Jesus. So human nature, I think is, is a pretty interesting conversation. Uh, our culture is not silent about this topic. Everyone has an opinion. Uh, there are many people 
who believe that people are naturally good. Like there'll be a few bad apples, but for the most part, people are good. Uh, raise your hand if you like country music. That's right. Those are my people. All right, so the seven of you out there who love the Lord and listen to country music, there is a song by a man named Luke Bryan that came out a couple years ago that was titled, Most People Are Good. What do you think his view is of human nature? Most people are good. He is wrong. But most people, <laughs> most people are good, right? I, I think, so I, Luke Bryan, I, I believe Luke Bryan is wrong. I think John 3 teaches that Luke Bryan is wrong. But before we get to that, I think most people, the reason, this song was pretty popular. I think the reason it was popular is because most people function like this is true. They assume it to be true. We never really think critically about it. So let me give you an example. If you're going through the Starbucks drive-thru because you like overpaying for coffee and you're, you're there and you notice someone behind you and you look in through the rear view and you're like, oh my goodness, that person goes to Northview. I'm gonna pay it forward. And you pay for their drink. What do you think that person's gonna do? They're gonna pay it forward, right? And then what do you think the person behind them is gonna do? Pay it forward, pay it forward. Pay it. And then you get one bad apple who's like, thanks for the free coffee, later, and just jets through there, right? So most people are good, right? We function as if that is true. Most people are good. But I, I don't think, uh, not, not everyone actually believes that. There have been people who've been like, whoa, 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 Luke Bryan, you're definitely wrong. Uh, as we look at society, society's messed up. People are definitely bad. And they'll give different explanations for the cause of the bad. So there was a philosopher, a French guy, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who, that's a pretty good accent, hey? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, who, he wrote a book called The Social Contract, and he said something very interesting. Man is born free and everywhere is in chains. See, Rousseau's opinion was not that people are good. People are actually neutral. They're born blank, but they live in this world and this world presses you. And the economics and the social media and the family relationships and the suffering of scarcity of goods, all of that combines and turns people into monsters. Society stinks. And the reason it stinks is because society makes people bad. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, I, I think is onto something. People are bad, but his origin of that badness I, I think is incorrect. You see, the Bible actually says some stuff about human nature. We're gonna come back to John 3, but I wanna give you one verse that very clearly teaches the origin of the corruption inside of people. Colossians 1.21, it's like 10, 10 words, but it's very deep. And you, so people like you and me, people in general, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. And then it goes on to talk about salvation. We'll get to salvation in a second. But in this one, we're talking about the nature of humans. So alienated, humans are separate from God. There is a distance between us, creatures, and God, creator. John chapter three says, we are from below. Okay, John seems to agree with Colossians 121. Uh, alienated and second, hostile in mind. This is what the Bible will call a sin nature. Theologians have called it a, a sin nature. Uh, there's something internal that expresses itself in rebellion towards God. People are hostile in mind. They're saying, I, I don't really want your rule. I don't care what you think, God. I'm gonna do my thing. Colossians 1 calls it hostile in mind. 
John 3.19 says we love the darkness. John is saying the same kind of things. Lastly, doing evil deeds. Number three, doing evil deeds. John 3.20 says people work in darkness. So your sin nature expresses itself in your life and that you do bad things because you're far from God and you don't wanna be close to God. That's the human condition. Jean-Jacques Rousseau was right. People are bad, but it's not society that ruins them. It's their hearts. There's something internal that expresses, that moves forth and ruins human society. Everyone wants to be king. And God says, I'm in charge. And we say, no, thank you. You might be thinking, that's not me. I'm actually a pretty nice person. Jean-Jacques Rousseau was wrong about me. Luke Bryan was right about me. But I wanna give you a very easy example to show you that this rebellion, this hostility in mind is present in all people, even the very little ones. I've mentioned it before. I have a son, his name is Isaiah. And Isaiah is now 19 months, almost 20 months. He is getting to the point where he kind of talks a little bit. And it is very interesting to see the kind of things my son says. So I'm gonna walk you through a few examples of our interactions. I walk up to Isaiah. It's 7.15. Isaiah, time for bed. No, no. I'm like, Isaiah, come here. No. All right, daddy will go get you. And then I go and he cries and screams and pushes away from me as I walk him up to bed. Uh, it smells in here. Isaiah, did you poo? Poop, poop. All right, Isaiah, come here. Daddy's gonna change your diaper. No, no. I'm like, Isaiah, you smell horrible. Come here. No. Like, all right. Isaiah, do you want a cookie? Yeah. Like, whoa, whoa. Okay. So you can say yes. Well, what, what are we seeing in this little example of this child, of this toddler? He's just like his... All right. Someone kick that guy out. No, what, what we're seeing... You're derailing me, man. To bring it back to John... See, that's sinful nature, right? He's got to pop off. He had to say something. <laughs> anyways, anyways, here, we're back. We're back. Let's, let's let God's word speak. Hey, Mark? <laughs> right, that was my last one. See, human nature, it comes out of me too. What, what I wanted to show you in that example of Isaiah's interactions with me, Isaiah knows what he wants and he does not want dad's rule in his life. He doesn't like it that I'm in charge. When I force him to do stuff, because I am 30 times his size, he is angry that I can force him to do stuff. It's funny when we see it in children. It's sad when we see it in adults. And human nature in all of us works itself forth in that we say, I'm doing my own thing. I just, I don't really need the church thing. I don't need God. I don't need the Bible. I'm just, I'm out here. We're doing fine. But what did Jesus say? This is Mark 1.15, like the most common words that Jesus used in his preaching ministry. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus is saying, I'm here. I'm the king. I, I'm the creator. You're the creation. Y'all need to obey me. Repent of your rebellion and believe the gospel. Come and follow me. Obey me and a bunch of people walked away. A bunch of people went after John the Baptist. A bunch of people went after the Pharisees. Jesus is king, but no one likes it. 
that they're not king. Jesus is king over the world because he is from heaven. John 3 makes statements about human nature, that humans are sinful in their nature, and then it makes statements about who Jesus is. Jesus does not have our sinful nature because he is from above. And because he is from above, he's free of that sinful nature, and he is in fact God. John, the Gospel of John, wants to make this evident and hints at it throughout the entire Gospel. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You're like, who's the Word? I, I don't understand. John 1.18, uh, Jesus has made God known. No one has seen the Father except the Son, and the Son makes the Father known. You're like, I, okay, so... Jesus makes himself known, Jesus makes God. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not tracking, I don't understand. John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, this is the son of God. Behold the lamb of God. This guy, he's special. He's gonna save people. And we're reading through John and we're like, I'm still not clear who this Jesus is and what it is that he came to do. So here in John chapter three, John the evangelist, not John the Baptist, John the evangelist is now making it crystal clear. Verse 28 he captures the words of John the Baptist who says, I've told you I'm not the Christ. He is the Christ. Verse 31, he is from above. How, why is Jesus greater than John the Baptist? Because they come from different places. John the Baptist was born of people. Jesus was born from above. Uh, verse 32, he has seen God. Verse 34, God sent him. Verse 35, God has given all things into his hands. Why is Jesus in charge? Why is Jesus king? Because uh, he's from heaven, uh, he's seen God, he is God, he knows God, he speaks the words of God, God gave him authority. Yeah, it's pretty obvious at the end of John chapter three why Jesus gets to tell you what to do. John is being crystal clear because he wants us to understand what Christian life is. This brings us, I think, to a very important application that if you are gonna follow Jesus, there's a bunch of people in this room who would self-identify as Christians. They would say, no, no, I've believed, right? We answer the how question. I believed in Jesus. I've been given the new birth. Yes, I believe that God gave it to me from above. There's a bunch of people in this room who say, I am a Christian. What is the nature of faith, of belief? John 3 has some very important things to say, specifically in verse 36. So before I get to that, I wanna backtrack a second. In John chapter 2, if, if we didn't get to chapter three, if only, we only had John chapter one and chapter two, we could define belief as basically knowing the right things. Right, listen to John chapter two. This is verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Right, they're like, this Jesus guy's pretty amazing. I think he's special. I, I recognize something in him. I don't know exactly what, but I, I'm gonna follow him. I believe the right things. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. If all, that, if all you had was that verse, you would think, okay, you gotta believe the right things. You gotta recognize who Jesus is. But then when we get to John chapter three, specifically verse 36, I think John adds another layer to belief. Listen to the words of 36. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. You're like, yes, that's, we get it. John 3, 16 said basically the same thing. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John again draws a contrast of opposites. Belief 
and the opposite of belief you would think is unbelief. John says it's actually disobedience. The opposite of belief is disobedience. So that adds to our definition. And we would say, if you have genuine faith in Jesus, you obey what he said. First, in responding to the gospel. And then secondly, in how you live. The lesson here is that Christian life is an obedient life. Christian life is an obedient life. You might be sitting in this room and you're thinking, uh, I have no idea how anyone's gonna live up to that standard. Like, I, I try really hard, Fred. <laughs> like, I try. I, I read my Bible, I pray, like, I try not to sin, but, you know, every time I drive out Downs Road and there's someone going 45 kilometers an hour, I get mad. And I can't help it that I get mad. I'm trying so hard to be like a good Christian example to my kids, but they don't listen and then I just yell at them and I can't stop yelling at them. Bro, I, I want to control the, all the things I listen to and all the things I watch, but you know, it's hard and that cell phone's right there and I have access to an entire world of temptations. I'm really struggling at this obedience thing. Verse 34 gives us hope. He gives the spirit without measure. If you're sitting there and you're thinking, bro, I've messed up. Yeah. Welcome to the club. Everyone messes up. If you're sitting there and you're thinking, I don't know how not to mess up. Well, he gave you a spirit without measure. The, the promise in John 3, 34 is that God commands your obedience and then empowers it. God tells you, go dig a hole and then gives you the shovel. God says, tell my story, right? Tell people about Jesus and then gives you a Bible so you have stories to share with other people. He commands your obedience and then fills you with his spirit so that you can actually do it. If you self-identify as a Christian, John 3 challenges us with this question, do you obey God's commands as seen in his word? It is obvious that Christian life is an obedient life. Returning to the story I told you at the beginning, we, uh, we, we ended up buying a CRV. So I, that's the one we went with because it had a bigger trunk space. And October 6th, so just a couple weeks ago, we welcomed our second baby into the world. We have two. We have a little boy named Isaiah. Yeah, you can clap. I'm excited. Uh, and a second... Thank you, thank you. God has been kind. And a second one uh, named August. And these two little boys, they fit in the SUV, but I don't know how we're gonna fit three in there. Uh, and as, as I'm thinking of you know, th that comparison, you know, which one is greater? And I'm thinking, man, I gotta upgrade to that Honda Odyssey, right? It's time for minivan life. Uh, I couldn't help but think of how quickly we settle on the things that are below. I'm worried about a car. I'm worried about space in this vehicle. Right? Honda CRVs are great. Honda Odysseys are better. Jesus is greater. As you listened today, as you drive out of here, walk out of here, I hope that that phrase takes you that Jesus is greater. Jesus offers eternal life. You have to respond. So I hope that you have. I'm going to pray for us and invite the worship team back up. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word uh, and the, the encouragement 
that salvation is of you, that you give it to us from heaven. And also the challenges, Lord, here, that the Christian life is an obedient life. Father, I pray that people in this room would feel that, that it would, be, it would be impressed upon their heart and that they would know that they are filled with your Holy Spirit, that you've given them without measure so that they can live the obedient Christian life. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.